Hello, my name is Skylar. My name is Amelia. And my name is Cole. And this is Into the Aura of Information. Today we're going to be talking about information art. Information art is artwork that uses data as its medium. For primer on information art, we'll be introducing Natalie Meebach, Sandra Lano Mejia, Rafael Lozano Hemmer, Charles Babbage, and Ada Lovelace. Yeah, let's do this thing. Hello, everyone. I'm going to be talking about artist Natalie Meebach. I'm just going to start off by giving us some basic background information about her. So, Natalie bridges the gap, in my opinion, between art and science through her sculptures based on scientific data related to ecology, climate change, and meteorology. We're going to be focusing primarily on her art regarding weather patterns, though. So her preferred medium to work with is usually basket weaving, as it somewhat resembles a grid by which she can interpret data three-dimensionally. Uh, she prioritizes an exploration of what role art can play in understanding scientific data, and she herself even says that she questions the traditional ways that science has been translated visually, such as graphs, diagrams, etc. And she wants to redefine the ways that we view data. So not only does she work through sculpture, but she works through music as well. And I'm going to be mostly focusing on her sculptural aspects, but I think this is just an interesting thing that we can talk about as well. So for example, Natalie has often translated weather data into musical scores that she can either coincide with a sculpture that she's made or inspire her to create a new one. Uh, she argues that weather events have two different narratives. The first one being purely scientific, such as pressure, wind data, all that. And the second being a more emotional aspect involving the real human experiences of said storms and how it impacts uh, people during and long after these storms happen. Um, I personally just find this very interesting because there's this sense of science and art that kind of just merge together and data and uh, emotional aspects that merge together as well. So now that I've discussed the meaning behind Natalie's work, I want to discuss more about how the work is made. So as I've said previously, most of Natalie's sculptures are based first in basket weaving. And there's a massive number of different colored beads and bands that she weaves throughout the sculpture that represent a different weather element and can also be read as a musical note in some of her scores. Um, her process starts from her extracting information from a specific environment through using very low-tech data, collecting devices, usually stuff that she says that she's found in the hardware store. Uh, and then she compares her information that she gathered with those of satellites, weather stations, and offshore buoys. So she's got this huge amount of numbers and data. And then she begins the process of translating that data through basket weaving. Now, if you have a basket at home or if you... Uh, just Google what a basket looks like on the internet, you will see that it goes in both horizontal and vertical directions in order to keep the structure stable. And she uses this uh, part of the medium and the weaves of the basket uh, as some sort of grid for her to use. So basically she weaves where the data points change, which is how the sculpture gets their unique and interesting shapes. And thus the structure becomes an amalgamation of uh, weather data. And it's the numbers that control the form, not Natalie. And so these sculptures allow the viewer to see relationships through weather patterns that otherwise would have been completely foreign to them. So lastly, I want to talk about how Natalie's work can relate to the aura. 
So how does her work relate to the aura? In our class, we talked a lot about writer Walter Benjamin's article that implies that the aura revolves around a work that isn't a reproduction, but is the authentic real thing. And one quote that really stood out to me from him was, unique phenomenon of a distance, however close it may be. And Benjamin discusses pieces with aura as if they're supposed to be some sort of celebrity. It's uh, unapproachable and rare nature gives it a close following of people. But in the category of art that we're talking about, information art, it's practically everywhere. It's arguably one of the most approachable versions of art out there. I mean, think about it. Think about how much uh, subway maps you see on a day-to-day basis. Topographical art. It's everywhere. And because of that, our group kind of does have a bit of a divide in whether information art has an aura or not. So usually I would argue that it can have an aura, but it's very difficult to define and it has to be a specific type of work in order to have an aura. Uh, I don't believe subway maps can have an aura because uh, we see the information first before we see any of the art behind it. Um, And I'd argue that Natalie's work does have an aura within it. Um, Her work is art first and information second. And what I mean by that is that although Natalie clearly prioritizes the data and research first, uh, uh, the pieces that she creates don't look like information when you first look on it. It's not like a subway map at all, therefore it's, um, it's art first. Like when you go up to one of her pieces for the first time, if you really do look at some of the images on the internet of them, you wouldn't guess that it would have all of this data and information behind it. You would just be like, wow, that's that's so beautiful. That's so unique. And therefore we think of art before we think of the information when it comes to her piece. And that doesn't have to be the case behind Aura at all. But I do think with some information art, it can be a bit distracting to see the information first. Not that it can't be done, but it's very difficult to see the aura behind it, if that were the case. Um, And I think Natalie's pieces are beautiful and they're large and unique. And so unique and rare that people will just generally gravitate towards it as if it was a celebrity. Um, So that's my stance on Uh, Natalie's work and the aura and uh, I thank everyone for listening to me and uh, I really do implore you to check out her work it's really beautiful and I don't think it'll disappoint hello everyone this is Skylar and I'm going to be talking about both Sandra Llano Mejia and Rafael Lozano Heimer and how their works both use similar techniques and technologies to process and extract information. And how these interactions have evolved through time and how the information has been used to, as both a tool to share and transcribe and simulate these experiences with others. So first we're gonna talk about Sandra Ayana Mejia. Um, She was born in Colombia in 1951 Um, She moved to Mexico City where she graduated in visual arts and developed her her most influential work there. After doing her master's um, in art design and communication and and studying philosophy in Mexico, she started working between disciplines of art, science, and technology as both an artist and a professor. 
through performance, body art, and happenings. She has shown an intense interest in making the body and the senses her subject matter. And in a very real way, all of her works are a reflection on time and its understanding, be it from metaphysical, philosophical, mathematical, or technological. She's using all these extensions of the human to define an aspect of reality or an experience. And so um, while all her works are amazing, um, we're going to be focusing on Impulso, or Impulse uh, was one of her most influential works done in 1978. Uh, in this project, she uses technologies such as computers and, and uh, medical equipment to, to, to produce desired effects. To begin the process, she first had an uh, equipped herself to an electrocardiogram, uh, and an electrocardiogram records electrical signals from your heart to check for different heart conditions. Electrodes are placed on your chest to record your heart's electrical signals, which cause your heart to beat. These signals are shown as waves, and um, are shown as waves on an attached computer monitor or printer. And in Sandra's case, it was both a monitor and a printer. Um, a printer in the physical um, experience and a monitor in the uh, in her video work. Uh, and the idea was for her for her viewers to take their emotions with them in the form of these cardiographic images. Um, and in the video work, um, you can see that in the beginning, you hear the breath. And so it's all about the senses. And so um, all these different datas are reacting to the human. And so in the beginning, visually, you can see this one line that's represented as the heart. And towards the end, she, towards the end of the video, she contracts her breath in all these different ways, filling up the screen with that one line. And so that one green line becomes the whole screen because she's used this medical technology in 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 a different way and so she's used it to its maybe capacity and um and so it's really a, a, a an experience that she's simulating and similar to that um rafael lozano heimer um he has some also pulse works and um, specifically I'm, I want to talk about this pulse index work but first um, just really quickly um, Rafael Lozano Heimer was born in Mexico City in 1967 and in 1989 he received a BS in physical chemistry from there um, in Montreal Canada he is a media artist working at the intersection of architecture and performance art he creates he creates these spatial arrangements for public participation using technologies that he programs and choreographs to create an experience that oftentimes reacts to these users' participations. Um, he's inspired by, um, by these technologies. And while he has some other amazing works, we're gonna focus on the Pulse works, um, specifically the Pulse Index. Um, Pulse Index is an interactive installation that records participants' fingerprints and at the same time detects their heart rates and graphically archives them on uh, in a room or on a bigger screen. And so um, reflecting on both of theirs, I think 
early on, um, Sandra was interested in these aspects of the human. And so within her work, it's showing that this one individual's experience um, and in the video work, it's, the, it's her breath. And um, in, in the physical work of uh, her physical work, where one takes the, takes the graph with them, um, I think it, it's both the individual. And um, I think with the future or how the technology has developed over the years, um, Raphael has been able to control this information and archive it in a way that um, that kind of panelizes these each individual and makes them a collective. So it's more about this collective work and his um, scale is much bigger. And so there's these rooms where you can experience a heartbeat or a pulse. And um, so it's, it's interesting to just see how this technology has been um, carried on. And so I think it definitely has an aura just because there's an aura of the individual in that they can take something with them and um, it's transcribed through this medical technology and um, how Raphael used it later in the future to where he, um, he captures this human, this human's identity and their experience, which is their heartbeat and makes it a part of this collective room. It brings all these ideas or people together into a, uh, into a collective. And I think um, that just how technology is designed and how technology is now a design language, uh, I, think, um, I think it definitely has an aura just to be picked up and moved along throughout time. Thank you. That is it for me. I'd like to introduce Charles Babbage. His name is relatively obscure, but he was extremely important to the development of the computer, and thus to the study of information. He was a British inventor and mathematician, born December 26, 1791, and died October 18, 1871, both in London. His legacy is broad and various. In 1812, he helped to found the Analytical Society, the objective of which was to introduce developments from the European continent into English mathematics. In 1816, he was elected a fellow at the Royal Society of London. As a student at Cambridge University, he educated himself in the calculus of both Newton and Leibniz, and changed the course of mathematical teaching at that institution, which had become backward and inert. Babbage was instrumental in founding the Royal Astronomical Society in 1820 and the Statistical Society in 1834. He concerned himself with myriad pursuits, becoming expert in everything from astronomy to the manufacture of pins. He achieved the Lucasian Professorship of Mathematics, a prestigious seat at Cambridge University previously held by Isaac Newton himself. He was a London socialite, holding regular Saturday soirees that drew a glittering crowd that included politicians, members of the peerage, and the greatest English scientists and academics of the age, including Charles Darwin, Michael Faraday, and Charles Dickens. Babbage's most important achievement may have been his greatest failure. 
1923, he embarked on a massive project lasting 20 years and costing the British Treasury over 17,000 pounds. This project was the development of the mechanical computer. Unlike any other piece of manufacturing machinery, this device manufactured numbers. One could pose a question to the machine and expect an answer. Though he found it extremely difficult to communicate the nature of this peculiar Q&A to others, it was clear to everyone that this was a revolution. Its ultimate importance was that for the first time in human history, the device opened a portal between abstract information and physical mechanics. To Babbage, the world seemed made of numbers. He drew up tables of all manner of physical processes. His favorite number tables, however, were purely of numbers and didn't represent anything in the physical world. Number tables were valuable. Their value had to do with comparative difficulty of calculating the numbers and looking them up in a book. Bankers, insurance salesmen, farmers, stargazers, and anyone else in need of numerical data for their trade had need of number tables. Most people weren't capable of doing their own calculations. Even if they were, it was in most cases much more efficient and effective to reference number tables rather than performing ad hoc calculations. In the 18th century, computers and calculators existed. They were people with special skills. Computing, as such, was necessarily expensive. In 1767, England's Board of Longitude ordered the publication of a yearly nautical almanac, including the positions of the Sun, Moon, Planets, Stars, and Moons of Jupiter. Over the next 50 years, a network of computers composed of 35 men and one woman, named Mary Edwards, did the work from their homes. Their labor paid 70 pounds per annum, and rules were laid out for each type of calculation. But the computers made errors. The same work was often farmed out twice for redundancy. But the computers would save themselves labor by copying from one another, thus undermining the redundancy. The information flow was managed by a comparer of the ephemeras and corrector of the proofs. The communication between computers and the comparer went by post, taking several days per message. For many decades, these tables were never compared to one another. When manually calculated tables finally began to be compared to one another, unexpected flaws emerged, and these flaws propagated as flaws emerged in the errata of previous almanacs, resulting in errata of errata of errata. In publications like Nautical Almanacs, this was a big deal. Every flaw was a potential shipwreck. When Ireland established its Ordnance Survey, which meant to map the country on a finer scale than any nation had yet accomplished, the first step was to ensure that the surveyors, teams of sappers and miners, had 250 sets of portable logarithmic tables accurate to seven places. The survey obtained many tables from England, Europe, and China. The same six errors were discovered in nearly every volume, showing that the tables had been copied from one another. Errors tended to arise from carrying operations and from inversions of digits by printers. Babbage saw that in order to eliminate such errors, the calculations had to be accomplished mechanically. According to a story that Babbage told many decades later, while working on a manuscript for the Astronomical Society, he became frustrated with the tedium of the calculations and wished that they could be accomplished by steam. Steam was the watchword of what was known as the machine age. It represented power, ingenuity, and the progress of industry. Babbage set out to build a machine that could perform calculations automatically. The stipulation that it be automatic was tricky to quantify. It would have been easier if the words input and output had existed. 
Babbage's definition was, whether capable of arriving at its result through the motion of a spring, a descending weight, or any other constant force. A far-sighted standard, as it turns out, eliminating every device previously invented for calculation. Those devices had included bags of pebbles and knotted strings, which had served as short-term memory aids, and abacuses, which had abstracted mental calculation. In 1642, Blaise Pascal had created an adding machine with a row of revolving disks, one for each digit. Thirty years later, Wilhelm Gottfried Leibniz improved on Pascal's adding machine by using a cylindrical drum with protruding teeth to allow carrying from one digit to another. Leibniz had dreamed of mechanizing algebra and even reason itself. We may give final praise to the machine. It will be desirable to all who are engaged in computations. The managers of financial affairs, administrators of others' estates, merchants, surveyors, navigators, astronomers, for it is unworthy of excellent men to lose hours like slaves in the labor of calculation. Fundamentally, these prototypes remain similar to the abacus, a passive record of memory states. Babbage considered that machinery excelled at repetition and that the demand for such mechanized calculation would grow. He began work on his first difference engine. It operated on discrete decimal digits, represented by positions of wheels. When a wheel advanced from 9 to 0, the subsequent wheel would advance one position. The wheels had gears, meshing with subsequent wheels, to add the digits. The motion of the wheels transmitted information between them in tiny increments. Carrying presented a challenge. Babbage added a projecting tooth that would push a lever, transmitting the change in magnitude to the wheel above. The machine had to be faster than the human mind to justify its expense. Thus, the obsession with time merges in the history of computing machinery. Babbage conceived of parallel processing. Number wheels arrayed along an axis could allow a row of digits to be summed simultaneously. The problem was that this could cause cascades of carrying that would slow processing to a crawl. Babbage reckoned that the addition of two 50-digit numbers could be accomplished in as little as nine seconds. One of these carrying cascades could extend the process to a full minute. After endless contrivances and drawings focused on shortening processing time, he bought a lathe, which he used himself, hired metal workers, and in 1822 presented the Royal Society with a small working model of the difference engine. After being officially admitted to the Royal Society and becoming active and notorious in some scholarly social circles, the Treasury of the Exchequer became interested. Babbage told them that his machine would produce logarithmic tables as cheap as potatoes. How could they refuse? The Lords of the Treasury authorized an appropriation of 1,500 pounds, and the machine began generating popular excitement. Dionysius Lardner, a popular speaker on academic subjects, delivered a series of lectures concerning Babbage and his proposition to reduce arithmetic to the dominion of mechanism and to substitute an automaton for the compositor, to throw the powers of thought into wheelwork. It represented a conjunction of mechanism and thought. Babbage demolished the stables in back of his property and built his own forge and foundry. He engaged machinist Joseph Clement. Babbage and Clement had to invent new tools for the unprecedentedly complex device. There had been no standardization in parts in the Industrial Revolution, so Clement and his team created their own standards. After 10 years, the device stood two feet high and was capable of computing two six-figure results. 
Ten years after that, the projected scale on paper had reached 160 cubic feet, 15 tons, and 25,000 parts. Drawings by themselves covered more than 400 square feet. Babbage solved the carrying problem by staggering the initial addition operations and allowing the machine to anticipate carries at each order of magnitude based on the state of a latch. This represented the first instance of a machine having memory. The mere necessity of describing the machine became overwhelming. Babbage designed a new tool, a system of signs capable of representing mechanical timing and logic. What developed was a branching logic of mechanical transmission of motion, motion that was encoded through Babbage's system with information. The project ultimately failed because of a break between Babbage and Clement, who had demanded increasing amounts of money to continue the work, which led the government to suspect profiteering. Clement had also begun to fight for control of the specialized tools the men had designed. Meanwhile, the government had begun to lose faith in Babbage himself and had lost sight of the point of the machine. Prime Minister Robert Peel terminated the project. Babbage's dream did not end with the difference engine, however. His concept had expanded in new directions, and by then, he had met Ada Byron. Ada was a prodigy, raised in isolation by her mother, who encouraged Ada's interest in the sciences in order to steer her away from the pursuits of her father, the poet Lord Byron. She was creative, blindingly intelligent, and profoundly lonely. When she was 17, Lady Byron took her to see The Thinking Machine, the completed portion of The Difference Engine, held at Babbage's salon. Even at their first meeting, Ada and Babbage recognized each other's genius. Ada's genius, however, had no outlet. As a woman, she could not attend university in any of the scientific fields that interested her. She studied Euclid on her own. In a letter to a friend, she wrote, I do not consider that I know a proposition until I can imagine it to myself in the air and go through the construction and a demonstration without any book or assistance whatever. Ada Byron became Ada Lovelace when she married, and her husband was elevated to the peerage as Lord of Lovelace. Meanwhile, Babbage was moving beyond his original design to another species of machine that he called the analytical engine. He was aware of the limitations of the difference engine, and was inspired by the jacquard loom on display at the Strand. It could weave complex patterns when fed punched cards. He focused on the idea of abstracting information away from its physical substrate. The weaver could choose whatever colors of thread they wanted, and still the form of the pattern would be exactly the same based on the holes punched in the card. Babbage's new conception extended this process of abstraction. He designed his cogs to carry not just numbers, but variables, and designed the machine to be able to transition between mathematical operations. He imagined this abstract information being encoded on punched variable cards and operation cards. The machine embodied laws to Babbage, which were communicated to it by the cards. Information would course through the machinery, back and forth between physical locations for memory and computation that Babbage named stores and mills. Through all this development, Ada was his intellectual companion, his acolyte, and his muse. She had a mounting desperation to exercise and expand her mathematical intellect, and she focused her energies on adding her genius to Babbage's. She wrote to him that, I have a peculiar way of learning, and I think it must be a peculiar man to teach me successfully. In another letter she wrote, You know I am by nature a bit of a philosopher and a bit of a speculator, so that I look on through a very immeasurable vista, 
And though I see nothing but vague and cloudy uncertainty in the foreground of our being, yet I fancy I discern a very bright light a good way further on, and this makes me care much less about the cloudiness and indistinctness which is near. Am I too imaginative for you? I think not. As she and Babbage took to working as partners, Ada's vision became extremely important to the analytical engine. As she saw it, far beyond mere calculations, the machine performed operations, an operation being any process that alters the mutual relation between two or more things. Thus, this definition could encompass every conceivable subject. The engine's ability to process variables meant to Ada that it could act on things besides numbers. After all, the variables could mean anything. It could manipulate language or compose music. She understood this more acutely than did Babbage, and treated this hypothetical machine as though it already existed. Not only the mental and the material, but the theoretical and the practical in the mathematical world are brought together into a more intimate and effective connection with one another. The analytical engine weaves algebraical patterns, just as the jacquard loom weaves flowers and leaves. Ada Lovelace conducted a thought experiment applying the machine to the generation of the infinite series known as the Bernoulli numbers. No direct formula exists to generate them, but they can be worked out methodically by expanding the equations further and further, referring to coefficients from previous calculations each time. She devised a series of operations, a century later known as an algorithm or computer program, that at the time required painstaking explanation. Her algorithm was recursive, the result of each operation becoming fodder for the next. In this way, Ada Lovelace became the world's first computer programmer. The core of the idea was the variable, represented within the machine by columns of number wheels and by punched cards. They were a kind of receptacle capable of storing a number to many digits. Variables were the machine's units of information. Numbers traveled from variable cards to variables, to the mill for operations, to the store. While Babbage's professions and interests were vastly multifarious, it is clear that his life subject was information, sought in mathematics, the postal service, tree rings, and machinist workshops. Though his analytical engine was largely forgotten, it has been rediscovered and successfully constructed. The machine stands as the first attempt to enmesh the abstraction of information with the physical realm of wheels and cogs. Thank you for listening. I want to talk about this process of sort of abstracting information away from its like its base and and then committing it to mechanical processing because that seems amazing to me. I mean, obviously these days we're like caked in computers. Like I've got one on my wrist, one right here. I'm talking to you on one. I've probably got like four or five others in this room. Um, they have a tendency a little bit to seem like magic, um, but we're just like, ooh, electricity, microprocessing, yeah, that just kind of makes it happen, um, and maybe it's more comfortable that all of this information is getting transmitted without any moving parts because, like, our brain is able to process information without moving parts, so it's like more familiar. Considering information being transmitted mechanically from cog to cog, and then processed and expressed back into legible digits through that, 
process seems amazing. I, um, <laughs> I think uh, it, re it really is kind of amazing. And I think in all these works, uh, or one thing that all of our three, or all of our three segments share is how these uh, designers were translating this data in, in trying to show a or show something through this data. And, and so, um, for instance, um, Amelia, your artist was using um, or was looking at weather patterns and, and creating like something out of these patterns. And so she's like e extracting all this information. And, and, um, and so I, I, it's, it's really curious to how, I wonder if she's already, if she's, how she views these patterns and if she's, um, if she views them in some kind of already weave or if she's somehow like weaving these um, datas together already. Um, yeah, it's actually really interesting because I, I, I didn't say this before, but she has this like, she, she doesn't like the way that science, scientific data is already presented in like graph form or chart form. She wants to reinterpret how we see scientific data and that's why she's attracted to towards like art sculptures and stuff like that. And I don't think she really sees the sculpture before she makes it, like you say, because it is like entirely based on data. And that's how the forms become so like interesting. Like I think that just you saying that, it, and so it's so weird because her going from the information and looking at these graphs and the graphs are kind of linear uh, x and y mm -hmm. and how she creates these weaves that are an x and y but they start to wrap in on each other and like like uh fall into each other and kind of like how these weather patterns do how the hot air mixes with the cold air and like and you can see that these um forces are entangling in her sculptures there's and, a spontaneity there yeah or maybe a lack of maybe a lack of control yeah like there's yeah, a what is that word entropy there's an entropy yeah in, um within her work and within the weather patterns and i think that like it's so crazy that you can there's oh great you're bringing chaos theory into this <laughs> which relates to information theory it does it does and so like there, there's how it, she's really capturing the essence of the data that she's making or that she's uh observing and she's creating kind of this like truthful maybe um sculpture of this data or personification of this data um yeah i mean if you look at the sculptures like pictures of them they're pretty chaotic like they don't look neat they emerge basically and weather's chaotic heat yeah, is chaotic yeah. heat causes weather yeah and it's it, it is a summation of what weather would look like because we can't see patterns of weather with our eyes. We could see it when it's raining and like when- When clouds form in certain ways and you can watch them. Yeah, but we don't shapes. see the science behind it with our eyes and she's basically- yeah, we can't see the forces. And mm -hmm. the, um, it's like positive and negative versions of weather. I think one of her artist statements was she wanted to show how like, um, there's the scientific part 
Um, and then there's the emotional aspect of like some people like go through some of these storms and they don't make it out of it. Like sometimes their houses are ruined and it, it destroys it. So she wants to show like beauty in it and the beauty of weather and science but there's also like the emotional aspect that she tries to get through it and that's why some of her pieces are like colored you know some sure. of them have a warmer color scheme some of them have a cooler color scheme and you can make associations based on that i mean well there's there is the issue of kind of levels of abstraction um and it occurred to me just as skylar was kind of broaching that topic in relation to in relation to weather that we now have a whole sort of we have pictographed pictographic abstracts for each kind of archetypic uh, or archetypal state of weather where you can glance at your phone and there's a little cloud guy and you're like oh. shit and so, you know, or it's sunny and it's like, getting on my bike today, you know, and there, there, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of, um, I guess, learned information of what it means for it to be sunny or cloudy or partly cloudy, what this um, pictogram means in relation to that, how likely it is to be true. And then there's the automatic response that you have when you see that. Um, <laughs> And it refers back to like your own topic in a way with your like technology and how quick everybody's supposed to get things and we don't even know the history behind all of that. Well, yeah. And also just- There's, there's a lot of history, it's hard to keep track of. Yeah. <laughs> and just to think about like all this information and how, I think it's just so interesting how all these, uh, uh, information artists are viewing this information or like digesting and so you're talking about how Ada at one point like kind of spends her uh, maybe off time just piecing apart or building this contraption in her head and disassembling it and until she understands its inner workings then she can actually like use it or create it but I think it's really interesting that all of our um, study or people we're looking at are view information like this as like uh, as like parts in a system and so um amelia's weather uh weather um, artist um sandra and rafael uh they're both looking at the human experience as this um as this uh line that depicts a feeling or depicts a, a time I like how you described that with like the human experience thing. I think that relates so much to your pieces, actually. It's kind of an emotive snapshot, both that and the uh, the um, the weather. God damn it! Yeah, the meteorological sculpture. Yeah. Um, when when that kind of emotional. Um, angle enters into it and it's like and it's a hurricane and it's making me feel like this and you know and also here's your heart rate showing that you're very enervated and you're late for a meeting and why are you even at this art ex exhibition yeah. <laughs> um yeah um you know it's 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 kind it's capturing a moment it's abstracting a moment which is super real when you're living it and it pulls out specific 
parts of that. And then puts them on paper or into sculptural yeah. form so that they can be, I guess, kind of reinterpreted in this kind of reduced way. Yeah. And big, like the maybe clarified way because I mean, sometimes they're not clarifying it. Like sometimes, like, I mean, I, I, it is is kind of a clarification because it is organizing the information. Well, it's reducing the information in general. But I mean, in, 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 um, um, what is your artist's name again, Amelia? Natalie Meebach. In in Meebach's, uh, uh, yeah, you're good. <laughs> in Meebach, in Natalie Meebach's sculptures, there are these kind of like chaos. And whenever I do look at them, they remind me of science, like the science sculptures that you build in science class in high school with all the atoms, and you mix the or not. Oh yeah. Oh heck yeah. Uh, and so like, uh, there is like that kind of uh sense that you get from it. But also, um, there's a sense that you get, um, or so there's like that sense that you see like this chaos, but there's also the sense that it is science, that it does make sense that all these parts are integral or they're working in some way. And yeah. so um, all the, like, there's a very, uh, there's kind of a language in it, like a system that's all, um, very present in all these works and i think i think that uh the the method the systematic the the systematization um is maybe key to information art is that there a, a system has to create it and that makes it kind of parsable in a um, in a coherent way by the viewer yeah, that um, is fundamentally consistent in practically every piece of information art that I've at least seen. Yeah. And I think yes. that's, why, why, that's why I would argue that aura is so present within this realm of art. Because yeah, I was going to say, it's a good time to pull it around to that. <laughs> <laughs> and so aura is, it, it, it is present in all of these because the, this information descends from something. And so it is part of a bigger system already. And so um, it, I think it's also really rich whenever research or it projects start from information or start yeah. from, or have a base. And so all these works work from a base already or work from an idea. And in and, and, and like um, our artists, they're pulling ideas from reality and pulling ideas and, and pulling from my ideas from reality and abstracting them into either a machine or a device or an experience or sculpture. Um, sure. So you would say that then the information expressed by the piece to move, I, I think maybe the having the difference engine confuses the conversation a little bit, but in something, um, I mean, in work like in work like Mibach or uh, Megia's or Hemmer's work, yeah, um, that data being expressed to you, the viewer, is sort of the aura. Is that kind of yeah what you're driving at? Yeah, and I think I, I yeah because there's something that's living before it and after it, and so and and why this this 
artwork is so maybe the word is like obtainable or understandable is because it's it transcendent. Yeah, yeah. It starts off <laughs> from this base point that has been studied with and that is understandable to the human already. We can understand weather patterns because some of us were raised watching the news. We can understand um, we can understand heart rates because some of us have seen uh, ER or, uh, or been to the ER. <laughs> Yeah, um, and so like, uh, or you it, happen to wear one of these lovely little heart rate monitors all the time, as <laughs> I have hanging from my handlebar. Or you watch Grey's Anatomy. I don't know. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> and so that sweet, sweet Doctor Grey. Yeah. Oh God, Doctor Sexy. <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I argue that you're right, Skylar. I th I actually do think that all three of our pieces that we've discussed do contain some level of aura because of that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I said in my presentation that like um, it can be hard for some like information art to be seen or like to have an aura simply because some things that can be considered information art are things that we see on a day-to-day -day basis that we don't pay attention to. Maybe but, the dryness has a tendency to yeah. strip it of its... Yeah, I that's what I'm getting at. But mm -hmm. I, I think with all three of our pieces that that doesn't occur. Mm -hmm. so. Sure, yeah. I mean, there's the, um, the difference engine, the analytical engine were not artworks in themselves. Um, but they're integral, they're parts and they all have integral parts that affect the bigger system. And I would say that there is that kind of oral um, or I don't know, orational <laughs> effect, something like that. Um, if only from the point of view that uh, according to information theory of which I understand relatively little because it's complicated, information is energetic and is quantifiable. And um, that is like that energetic quality is why it can be transmitted. Mm -hmm. um, that's also why perpetual motion machines are impossible because you need information to run them and information costs energy. Um, but uh, that's beside the point. But basically, yeah, you have this, this uh, energetic substance basically flowing through this machine through um, mills and stores and being abstracted and altered and bringing you to new conclusions. Um, I mean, plus it's an amazing looking piece of machinery and that, you know, it has a certain gravity there. Historical yeah. piece of machinery. I think anything that has history behind it. Well, yeah, it hits you over the head with history. And like Ada Lovelace's first ever freaking computer programmer, come on. Yeah, yeah I mean, that in and of itself makes you like have that feeling of distance or like she's so much cooler than me <laughs> i can't even <laughs> guys like what are you talking about <laughs> i wasn't gonna speak for you no she is cooler than me all um, right that's all right and <laughs> um but <laughs> sorry to bring the room down. Now that none of us feel cool. <laughs> <laughs> We're all losers now.
<laughs> this has been Into the Aura of Information. I'm Cole. I'm Amelia. And I'm Skylar. And I'm Skylar! <laughs> Goodbye! Bye! <laughs> <laughs>